morning. It's good to be with you here at Hinsdale Covenant Church. I don't think that uh, this will come as a surprise to many of you, but I was not a very traditional or easy student when I was a child. Um, I've never been called traditional many things in my life, actually. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, I have taken the uh, long, circuitous route um, around uh, normalcy and into my own way. And I think that that's partially because as the youngest of five, uh, four kids ahead of me, I had to kind of do uh, things outside of the norm to kind of make myself known. A lot of kids, the youngest children in the house, anybody? You kind of maybe know what I'm talking about a little bit, but you got to be a little bit uh, different as the youngest child. Um, not, that non-traditionality has shaped a lot of who I am, I think, uh, and especially it's shaped my methods of learning. Uh, I can hear information, but whereas a lot of people uh, easily hear and input information, uh, it's difficult for me to understand something completely unless uh, I've re- uh, reverse engineered it. I like to take things apart uh, and then put them back together. It's hard for me to understand information until I've done that or found kind of my own avenue uh, into something. A famous story about this from our family uh, when I was growing up is uh, my siblings all went to this magnet primary school in Chicago named Edison. We grew up on the north side of Chicago. And so they went to this magnet primary school, and you have to take a test as like a five-year-old to get into it. Um, And so all my siblings made it in. Uh, You had to test into uh, Edison. And so my mom, when I was five, she brought me to the place where they tell, where they give you the test, they administer this. uh, They give you a bunch of questions. They put you in a room, you're sitting across from the table, and then there's that interrogation glass that my mom was behind with uh, various law enforcement officials and things like that. Um, So you're in this kind of weird place, and I was a five-year-old kid, and so I was sitting there, and they're asking me questions, and they're like, you know, what about this? What about that? What do you think of this? And asking all these different questions. And as the story goes, the test is going really well. And then the woman who, uh, woman who was uh, giving the test, she took out a piece of paper and it had a tree on it. And on the tree, there was uh, images of cherries. So there's cherries on the tree. And so the woman, uh, you know, took out the piece of paper, you know, turned around, showed it to me and said, Colby, can you tell me how many cherries are on the tree? So I silent for a little bit, and I thought about it, and I said, I don't, I don't know how many cherries are on the tree. I don't know how many cherries are on the tree, and I did not get into Edison, unfortunately. <laughs> they finished the test. I don't know if that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back, but she asked me how many cherries are on the tree, and I said, I don't know, and I didn't make it into Edison, and uh, the rest is history. Um, and so uh, after the test, you know, my life just went straight down, um, but after the test, we were walking to the car, and my mom came up to me. She was like, Colby, like, you know, what happened in there? Like, did you not, like, did you have trouble counting the cherries on the tree? And without missing a beat, I said, no, I knew how many cherries were on the tree. I just didn't want to tell her. <laughs> and every learning experience in my life has kind of been just a different version of that same story. Uh, like, everything since then has just been different ways of saying that same thing. Like, I maybe know the answer, but I just, why am I going to tell you? Uh, this is also, I wanted to share this because I feel like this, my mom was going through a bunch of old uh, papers and stuff like that. She found my uh, sixth grade report card. Uh, Here's my sixth grade report card and to show you an example of the way of a learner, uh, the kind of learner that I am. The the last part in math, um, my teacher uh, gave me this, you know, subtle dig. She said, in math, he needed to focus on the methods being taught rather than developing his own. (laughs) It's just like, how can, I, how can I write what I am saying in the most passive-aggressive way possible about the way that Colby learns? So anyway, I've told the, I told the world pretty early in life how, who I was going to be, and uh, my teacher knew it pretty early on. 
And I've always been that kind of a unique doctor, adopter of information. Oftentimes, it's difficult for me to understand or understand uh, or take something in unless I've witnessed it with my own eyes, or discovered it, or discovered that information in a way that makes sense to me. Information only goes so far for me. Um, and why does that matter? I know that there's seven trees on the tree, maybe, but why am I going to share that information? Moving forward. Uh, moving information from the head to the heart, something that I know, um, to something that impacts me and uh, seeks to come out, takes time for me. The appearance of something that challenges me is often what brings that about. A moment or an experience that shows me rather than tells me that information is true and that it ought to be true in my life and I can share that in a unique way. We've all probably sat on t- under teachers whose sole purpose, it seems, is to just give us information just offload the information and they expect us to do the work of applying it to our lives. The kind of teachers that just, you know, expel the information, it's regurgitation, give this information back to me. We've also hopefully all sat under teachers that do the opposite work and they say, here's information and here's how this information's alive. Whether the first time that you fired up a Bunsen burner and science made sense or you saw a connection between historical events and current events, the process of living and learning is one of translation, taking information from one uh, form, translating it into action. So the sermon series that we're in uh, this, uh, for these months is called uh, Small Books, uh, Small Books with a Big Message. And this week we're focusing on Titus. Um, the text this morning uh, comes from uh, a person writing to a people. It's information seeking people um, to live uh, lives to live in. Information seeking lives to be lived in. And it's not a secret about Sunday mornings that this time that we spend together is totally useless unless we take the information and translate it into action. If we don't, we become a people that Paul describes in 2.16 where he says that these people declare that they know God but deny him by what they do. Detestable and disobedient and useless for any good work. That's strong language, right? Useless for any good work. People that declare that they know information, it's up here but they betray that information by what they do. Useless for any good work. That All the right uh, information is there, maybe even uh, ready to start working, but we just can't get past that point where we say, why does this matter? Why is this applicable to my life? This is the living and the learning disconnect that Paul is talking to the people about. He's saying, you have the information, you've seen the example, but perhaps you haven't seen it lived. This is a useless life. Information is present, it hasn't come to life, and the life that's driven by fear rather than hatred, rather than hope, it's driven by hatred rather than love, a life that's driven by misguided allegiances rather than a foundational allegiance to the God who made us and formed us. We may say that we love, that love of God and neighbor is something that drives us, it's our guiding principle, but when we're faced with the opportunity of self-preservation or self-sacrifice for the good of others, I think many of us often choose the wide way of death rather than the narrow way that leads to life that Jesus talked about. So the question is, what changes us? In uh, the text uh, that we read, that that was read for us this morning, this comes from a translation called the Kingdom New Testament. um, And it's a really good translation. I like it a lot. And it forms, uh, it frames uh, the New Testament Um, and the words of Jesus and all of the writings of Jesus around the ways that he talked about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a present reality rather than only something that we uh, get to in the future, but something that has kind of come from the future into now in the person of Jesus 
Um, the, this translation kind of tries to put that uh, at the center of a lot of the way that they translate the words. And it says, we ourselves, you see, used to at one time be foolish, disobedient, and deceived. Enslaved to various passions and pleasures, we spend our time in wickedness and jealousy. But, and the, but's like the best word in the Bible, because whenever the, they're setting up kind of, you know, the, the rising action or the, uh, the, 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 the valley before the mountaintop, but is always in the middle of it. It's a transitional word that, you're le- that you use in language. And it, whenever you see that in the Bible, get ready for something. It says, we were enslaved to passions and pleasures, and we spent our time in wickedness and jealousy. But when the kindness and the generous love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not by works that we did in righteousness, but in accordance with his mercy, so that we might be justified by his grace and be made his heirs in accordance with the hope of the life of the age to come. The saying is sure. I love that way that he ends that, the way that this translation translates that. The saying is sure. Paul's way of saying, this works. What I'm talking about here, it's not just information. It's something that we've seen lived out. When we're talking about the life of Jesus, we're not just saying that it, came, that it was a one-time deal. It was something, it was the prototype for what would be. The, life, the hope of the life of the age to come, when we look and we see the kindness and the generous love of God, it should inspire in us that we too can live out that kindness and that generous love to those that are around us. And that's the way that he says it. He says, kindness and generous love appeared, and that's what saved us. The appearance of that kindness and generous love is what saves us. The revelation, the revealing, the new experience, the appearance of grace and love saves us. When God's love and grace appear, it must transform us and prepares us for lives of eager good work. Lives where we are spurred on and encouraged and corrected by brothers and sisters along the way of doing good eternal kingdom things in the present time and as an anticipation of the things which will come in Jesus, we are saved from foolishness and brokenness, and we're spurred on to wholeness and love. This week, uh, I titled my sermon, uh, The Appearance of Grace and Love. The Appearance of Grace and Love, because that's the language that Paul uses in here. He says, when the kindness and generous love appeared, we were saved. So this appearance and grace and love is an important thing But I use that intentionally because I think that it's something that can be taken two different ways. The word appearance can have multiple meanings. One way of understanding an appearance is that it's the process of something coming to existence or use. So if something appears, I've appeared before you this morning, I am here in body uh, and in spirit. I'm before you, I have appeared before you. But another way of understanding appearance is an impression given by someone or something, and this impression can be misleading. So you have the appearance of something, the physical representation of it, the actual representation, and you have the appearance of something, something that has all the properties of it on the outside but is missing what's on the inside. And what I would say this morning is that many of us, uh, in light of the appearance of grace and love in our own life, settle for these appearances of grace and love. Rather than letting those words become work, we just let them be appearances. We let them be on the surface. But the work of faith, is allowing that appearance to transform us, for us to live in that appearance, and for us to then uh, replicate that experience over and over again. For Paul, for the people Paul is talking about in Titus, the struggle is between this uh, tension of word and deed. They know the right words, 
and they say that they know God, but they fail to live into that reality. And this is the foundational work, living in the here and now in an anticipation of the God's kingdom, which will come on earth as it is in heaven. A life lived in true communion with God is one of constant learning, of consistent discovery, of new, new appearances of God's grace and love to live and love within. When faced with these appearances of God's love and grace, we have a choice to just talk in the right ways or to live in the right ways. So two weeks ago, well, last Saturday, I returned from Covenant Point. We were up there for this experience called AIL. It's called Adventures in Leadership. And Adventures in Leadership is a really cool program. Uh, students can apply to it. I brought two students from our church, Christian Morrow and uh, Grace Kislick, and we went up there. And we, uh, the, the point of the program is you can, up to 16 people can apply to it. And the whole point of the week is to focus on what it means to be servant leaders, to be leaders for God's kingdom uh, in the unique context that students come from. So the idea is that they go back to their churches and hopefully they've had a transformational experience, learn something about how um, to live um, for God in their context. And uh, so we had the opportunity to go. And uh, it's a really cool thing because one of the things that they do on it is uh, each student that's on it, we go onto the backpacking trail, um, you know, and they're in charge of everything. So they're in charge of making sure that we get to our campsite. They're in charge of making sure that we have our meals cooked and make sure that the dishes are clean, all these different things. So the students are the leaders for that portion. And then that's kind of like a, an experience that we debrief with them later to say, how'd that go? Like, you tried this, did that work? Blah, 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 all this different stuff. And then hopefully that's an experience for them to then um, learn more about the way that they're called to lead. And one of the things that we do is we focus on Jesus and the way that he led, the people that he hung out with, the, the ways that he served people and put the needs of others in front of his. And we model our leadership off of that servant leadership. And uh, one of the more impactful things uh, that uh, happened in that week was uh, the story of uh, one of the kids who was in our group. His name was James. That's his real name. I always like to say the real names of people that I share the story of, and James said that it was okay that I share this story. Um, to give you a little picture of who James is, he's a funny kid. He's gifted at sports. He does a lot of like extracurricular activities. He likes making videos. Um, he likes to be the center of attention a lot of times, and he's really, really competitive. Um, when we played him in broomball last year at One Life, it was an intense uh, situation, and he beat us. Uh, but whatever. Um, so I'm a little salty about that, but that's all right. Uh, he's also a pastor's kid, and so James knows a lot of the right answers. Um, but a lot of times, as, as often with many of us in faith, doesn't connect the dots between things that we know and things that we do. So James reminds me a lot of myself when I was in high school. Uh, so James had the opportunity to lead, and he, and he did a really nice job. Like, we got to our, tra we got to our trail place on time. Uh, the meals were uh, prepared on time, and dishes got cleaned, and all these different things. He did a nice job, and he led us in a devotion the next morning. And then uh, afterward, uh, I was debriefing with him, and he was like, yeah, I felt like it, I really enjoyed it. I liked leading. I enjoyed the experience of uh, getting to be the, be the person who was kind of, you know, where the buck stops. Um, and it was, a, it was a good experience. He did a nice job. At the end of the week, we had this time for our group to debrief, and we were sitting around in a circle on uh, Friday night, and I, I, I asked the question, you know, why did God bring you here this week? What was the, what was the opportunity that God brought you here to kind of uh, live into or something that you learned about yourself? Uh, so everyone in our group went around, and they shared stories of what, how they had surprised themselves, things that they didn't think that they could do that they did, um, gifts that other people in the group had affirmed in them that they didn't even see in themselves, or things that they maybe thought that they had, but, you know, had been encouraged in. 
it was really an awesome time of sharing. But throughout the time, James was uh, completely silent, which is not normal for James. He was silent and sullen, and he was sitting there, and so he didn't say anything. And so I closed in prayer and prayed, and as we were praying, I was expecting James to just, you know, not say anything, which is fine. Um, But after I prayed, um, James, clearly emotional, he spoke up and he started sharing about how difficult the week had been for him. How he felt like he had failed to live up um, to an example of who he felt he was supposed to be. Confidence or the appearance of confidence is not something that James really lacks. Like, he's a very confident kid. But it was clear that throughout that week, God had really been trying to tell him something about his limits, about the ways that he uh, couldn't live up to even his expectations of himself. And while most people in the circle uh, learned throughout that week that uh, they learned through their successes and through the affirmation of people in the circle, it was clear that James had really learned through his weaknesses and through his failings. As an example of this, um, he told the story of the morning where we were eating breakfast. He was making breakfast. He was boiling the uh, water for our oatmeal. And we'd eaten dinner late the night before, and so uh, him and his partner, Emma, had to clean the dishes in the dark. So they had, like, a headlamp, and so they were cleaning the dishes. Um, As a result of cleaning in the dark, um, as James was making uh, breakfast, he noticed that one of the the bowls didn't get cleaned very well. There was some grease left over in the bowl, and there were some wood chips um, that were in the bowl. I remember sitting across from the fire when James noticed that, and he said the words, I feel bad for anybody who gets the dirty bowl. And then James proceeded to take the cleanest bowl and encourage others to get to breakfast in time so that they didn't have to get stuck with the dirty bowl. So James took the first bowl, and he ate out of the bowl and cleaned and carried out his day like it was nothing. And he shared and he reflected on the story, and he, and he said that it, he recognized it as this picture of what God had to teach him. He had cleaned the bowls. It was really his fault that the bowls were dirty in the first place, but yet he still took first. That in the moment of taking first, he shared that he had missed this opportunity to live out the words of service that he knew, that his actions were this false appearance of love and grace rather than the fullness of what God desired for him. And as he told us the story through tears, he said, so much of my life is about making sure that I'm first or that I'm recognized or that I win. But this whole week, I feel like God is just saying, that's not what it's about. You don't need to be first. If you want to follow me, take the dirty bowl. And I was really touched by those words. How many of us need a dirty bowl experience where we could clearly pinpoint the dissonance between what we say and what we do, where we could be humble enough to look at God's grace and love and recognize the ways in which we've fallen woefully short of that expectation, ways in which we've been uh, not eager to do the good work that God has laid out in front of us, moments where uh, rather than we, we were called to move toward rather than away from brokenness so that we might be the appearance of love and grace to a world that's desperately in need of humble servants. It must begin with humility, the recognition that God's work always goes before us. Because of the love that we've been freely given, we can freely give. Because of God's mercy, we can extend mercy. Because God has appeared to us in grace and love, we join in the work of making grace and love known to all. The saying is sure. This way works. That's what Paul says. Like I said earlier, this appearance of love and grace that we have in God, the appearance that we have in one another, we talk about Jesus a lot and we say, Jesus died once for all. 
And that's true. Jesus died once for all. Jesus was raised once and for all. It happened once. But that appearance of love and grace was not a once for all thing. It was the prototype of what we would become. That was the example. That was the marker. That was God saying, look, here it is. This is before you. So do likewise. When we recognize our part and we join in God's eternal future work of restoration in here and now, as we order things the way that they're supposed to work, Paul says, this works. Be appearances of love and grace. Don't settle for lesser images or lesser deceiving ideas. Appearances of love and grace are not uncommon. They're just brushed to the side or unrecognized. But I want to say this morning as well that these appearances of love and grace, they're miracles of God. Maybe not miracles in the sense that we commonly classify where, you know, water gets turned into wine, but they're miracles in the sense that God is slowly growing and evolving his kingdom here and now through these actions and these appearances of love and grace. When James uh, this past week recognized that so much of his life was a competition and that God was calling him to take the dirty bowl, a miraculous appearance of love and grace was brought before him. The future reality of how things ought to be appeared before James, and, he, and it finally made sense to him in a way that it hadn't before. And now he can be encouraged to go and do the same. He knows that the saying is sure. Two nights ago in Chicago, somebody uh, raised the prayer request of the violence in Chicago. Two nights ago in Chicago, uh, a group of students gathered in a uh, church parking lot, and they camped out in the neighborhood at 48th and Hermitage. They camped out in there as an Increase the Peace initiative, and they gathered together as a way of saying, enough with this violence. Enough with uh, the hatred and the evil that's going on around us. We want to be people that daringly go into the places that need it most and being those appearances of love and grace, to be revelations of God's kingdom. And in doing that, those students and James and we, when we do it, step into this long road to peace and justice for those that continue to place blame or keep company with hatred. The saying is sure. God's love and grace and freedom appeared for all, and our bounded humanity to one another demands that we demand that love for others. It demands that we demand that grace for other people. It demands that we demand that freedom for other people. We're called to live in the appearance of grace and love. We're not called to live with an appearance of grace and love. We are called to live in it. So with every appearance of grace and love, we recognize the needs of others, we see the brokenness, and we take actions of love and grace rather than just living with empty words or appearances. We take still further steps in building God's kingdom here and now, and we allow it to go from the head to the heart. It awakens us to these moments where we can be that appearance not only for ourselves but also for others. So my question this morning is, what is your dirty bowl? In view of God's sacrificial love and grace, where is God calling you to humbly bring this kingdom reality of love and grace into your and others' lives? What good work is ready for you to do, but you've been too focused on your desires or other desires or goals or the competition that you've completely missed the point? What is your dirty bowl? I want to spend a couple moments in, uh, in silence as we reflect on that question because I think it's an important one for us to think. Where the, what's the good work that's prepared for me? How am I being called to be eager for good work? Let's reflect, and then I'll close this in prayer, and we'll sing together.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your love and grace has appeared, and we are a people marked by that love and grace. Not of our own doing, but by the power and action of Jesus' resurrection, we are given opportunities to live lives prepared for good work. So prepare us for that work, I pray. May we be good students, Lord, connecting the words of faith to the work of our body for the growth and the glory of your kingdom. Amen.